Wakefield 241st Street to Parsons Archer from Stillwell Avenue to Inwood 207th all across the transit system, the five boroughs in the 62 counties. It's 5 p.m. And so it's time for Max and Murphy, your interview and call-in show about the policies, politics, and people of New York City and New York State. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Jarrett, how are you? I'm well. How has your day been transit-wise? My day has been mostly good transit-wise, although on my way here from the office had a little bit of a hiccup, uh, but but mostly good. Yeah. Yes, me too. Commute, commute in this morning was good. You know, I take the B and the Q mostly, and I don't have, I haven't had a lot of issues in my morning commute. You shouldn't much. say that because that's going to make going I know. home very difficult. I, I, I know, but just, you know, I don't have, I have not had the level of complaints with the MTA that I think a lot of riders on other lines have had. I definitely, when things were really bad, what, a year and a half ago or so, I definitely had more issues than I've been having lately, but never, it was never quite so bad for me on my usual commutes that I, than I think other people experienced. How so about you? that, that is, uh, I have had, uh, I've had some, some rough days on the D train, I mm-hmm. must say, uh, and my new office is in Harlem and we have access also to the two train, which kind of goes near my house and the four is there too. So sometimes I, I break it up and sometimes luck smiles upon me and sometimes Sometimes cruel fate intervenes. Yeah, um, and I, I, I want to ride buses more. I enjoy the bus. Uh, I don't always have as much of a reason to do it, and the subways obviously are still a faster mode when they're you know when they're working as they should be. Um, and obviously, the buses crawl along way too slowly, but. Um, that it's always something where I want to find routes where it makes sense to take the bus because I like the bus if the bus is moving and it's good to be above ground and all that. But I don't right, get and on you the see a different. It's a different side of New York on the bus. I mean, it's a shade of difference that that uh, newcomers may not be able to detect. But uh, research shows that people on the bus tend to be older. You see more dis- people with disabilities. Obviously, there are some neighborhoods that are served almost exclusively by sure. buses, if not exclusively, and so people tend to have um, lower incomes. It's a uh, of color is more predominant on buses, so it's a, it is a different slice of New York. So, so we're talking transit today, as you might have yes, picked up. And from we want to hear from you. Uh, the first half of the show here, it's Jarrett, myself, and you. So we want to hear from you. Give us a call. Talk about not so much your commuting experiences, but we want to talk about what you think of a few things that are in the news and any other thoughts you might have are, are mostly welcome, probably. We'll see. Uh, but yesterday, City Council Speaker Corey Johnson gave his first State of the City speech about a year into his tenure as Speaker, and he put forward a very thorough, very comprehensive plan the highlights of which include the idea of the city taking over control of the subways and buses from the MTA, creating a new entity that would run the subways and buses under the control of the mayor with a board uh, advising the mayor and having some say, but mayoral control of the subways and buses is the big proposal. And he understands that it would take years to do, but we want to hear your thoughts on that uh, and some other things. So give us a call, uh, 212-209-287. Is the number to chat with us about policy program issues related to transit. But that wasn't the only thing that Corey Johnson put on the table because he also, I think, realized that city control of the subways and buses is either a little bit far fetched or would take several years. So he also put out some other ideas that we'd like to hear your thoughts on. 
and we'll get into those shortly. And I think also congestion pricing is very much in the news as it has been increasingly really over the past several months, getting more and more intense as the state budget process approaches its April 1st deadline. There have been some uh, expressions of concern and, and perhaps skepticism, maybe even opposition to the idea of charging vehicles to enter the central business district. We're going to have on a state senator from Hudson Valley, who is one of a group of senators who has raised some concerns about how commuters from that area will be treated under that system. That's Senator David Carlucci. He's going to join us at half past, talk about that and some other goings on in Albany. But as Ben said, between now and then, uh, you're welcome to call in and talk to us about what you're thinking on transit. Before we get to that, Ben, obviously there's some other news of the day. Um, I was very interested to read uh, Gotham Gazette's story about the Queen's DA race, which now that we're, we've both gone into election withdrawal, <laughs> the public advocate special election is done. We don't know what kind of uh, primary we may or may not get in that race in June, the Queen's DA's race, because let's face it, we're talking about what would effectively be one of America's largest cities if Queen's was independent, one of the most important law enforcement jobs in the world, and a very crowded field to replace a guy who has been there forever. Yeah, Richard Brown is retiring after decades as the Queen's District Attorney, 86 years old at this point, not running for re-election, and so Queen's is having its first competitive district attorney race in in decades, Um, and it's a crowded field of seven Democrats in the primary, and this election is June 25th. I can say, I believe with certainty that this is the most important election in New York this year. Uh, You know, even if there winds up being a competitive public advocate race, this is probably more important than who holds the public advocate position, unless you take into account that that person could then be mayor. But um, the Queens District Attorney role, as you indicated, is the top prosecutor in a borough of over 2 million people, larger population than many large cities in the country. Um, And obviously, there is a lot at stake in terms of who the the top prosecutor is. So I won't go into all the detail now, but we put put together a pretty, you know, solid, comprehensive overview of the seven candidates, where they are in certain positions. Um, The reporter who who did the work on it, Emma Whitford, did a great job. She talked to all seven candidates and tried to distill it into readable fashion about what are their prosecutorial priorities, where do they stand on certain reform issues, where do they stand on closing Rikers Island and, you know, creating a larger borough jail in Queens, you know, all sorts of key things in the race. It, obviously, one of the reasons why this job is so important is because under any system that the state uh develops in terms of any ways that criminal justice reform changes, bail rules or discovery or anything, there is still going to be great discretion for what you emphasize, whom you charge, what kind of uh, pretrial conditions you seek, uh, how onerous they are, what kind of sentencing you do. And prosecutors and district attorneys are going to have huge sway over that. And I think in your coverage, you mentioned that uh, almost everyone in the race is really uh, pushing the reform agenda uh, fairly aggressively. Um, Even the middle of the road candidate signs on to some of that. What I wonder is this other news that came yesterday about a spike in the murder rate, continuing concern about the the number of rapes in the city, uh, particularly in some areas and the NYPD responding to that. You know, is there any chance that that the context in which the race is playing out is going to shift because of crime in the city. 
I think there's a chance. I mean, I, I I think you and I probably agree that there shouldn't be a lot of reaction or overreaction to, you know, what in raw numbers is not a huge number of increases in murder in the city year to date, you know, the first couple of months of the year compared to last year. Although it's a concerning, you know, spike anytime there's a spike, but also the numbers are so low at this point, historically speaking, relatively speaking, that you know, even an increase of 10 murders, which is, you know, a lot of death, obviously, that nobody wants to see can sound like a very big percentage jump. And, and there's some of that going on. But but my answer is yes, certainly. And if we were to continue to see some spikes in crime reports, you know, the, the rape numbers are we've written about this at Gotham Gazette and other places have done some good work on this. You know, they're very tricky because we're we're clearly in an atmosphere where where more reporting is encouraged and happening. Um, and so, you know, folks are wrestling with the fact of, okay, is this just a result of people being more willing to report? So, you know, there's there's some of those nuanced conversations happening, but certainly the NYPD needs to be ready to deal with rape reports and has been understaffed and there's been problems with that that have been pointed out. In Queens, what our article tried to get out a little bit is for people to remember that even though Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was just elected partially from the borough and activists and elected officials defeated Amazon in part of the borough, Queens is a very diverse place, extremely diverse. And you have large pockets of Eastern Queens, especially that are more middle of the road, more conservative. You have a lot of law enforcement uh who live in Queens, a family of law enforcement who live in Queens. And so, you know, in a crowded Democratic primary, the more middle of the road, even conservative Democrat, um, you know, could could win. So it'll be very interesting to see how that discussion unfolds. Totally. And speaking of interesting discussions, we have a lot of budget talk going on. It is that time of year. The state is headed towards April 1st deadline. The city is earlier in its process. The preliminary budget that the mayor puts out is on the table. The council is now going through its first round of hearings, going to prepare its response to that budget. And uh, today, the city comptroller, Scott Stringer, gave his sort of first uh, official take on the mayor's preliminary budget. And he sounded some warning signals about, you know, whether we're girding for this uh, slowdown that's anticipated, whether enough money has been socked away. Uh, an interesting point for the the comptroller to make, obviously, everything is viewed from the perspective of his being a potential candidate for mayor and trying to stake out that role, but also having a fiduciary responsibility for monitoring the city. Uh, there was news last week that the city's bond rating improved, um, which obviously suggests that someone thinks that, that our economic I'm a prospects look pretty sound, uh, but Stringer was raising some uh, some concerns today. Right, Stringer uh, testified at the city council and is you know saying that there should be more uh, savings put aside. You know, you you almost can't ever be in dangerous uh, territory calling for more savings to be put aside for a budget. You know, one of the most interesting things is that the <laughs> the city is in such better shape than the state when it comes to savings relative to. To spending that, you know, this, the discussion in the city is almost a little academic at this point because the city is in solid shape. However, Mayor de Blasio has increased spending uh, quite a bit during his tenure and, and is proposing to do more. And Stringer is sort of waving the flag a little bit to say we need to put more away. De Blasio has announced a more of a savings plan. Um, and the city council held a hearing today 
the first hearing where Stringer testified, but also representatives of the mayor's office of management and budget testified. And they're trying to drill down on sort of where some more of those savings going to come from. So that's something to watch in budget season. You know, this year, unlike most of the others under Mayor de Blasio, the, the conversation is mostly going to ro- revolve around where the savings and the and the cuts at agency budgets are. And I don't think we're going to see any type of significant cuts to programs or anything like that. It's more about finding efficiencies, but that's where the conversation is really going to revolve as opposed to lots of new programs or anything like that. And of course, we have continuing fallout over the past few days over the decision by Amazon to withdraw its bid for uh, it's part of its second headquarters here in the city. Uh, people heard, obviously, about the full-page ad in the New York Times, uh, Governor Cuomo making a personal appeal to uh, Jeff Bezos to reconsider the decision. And it's it's been an interesting kind of epilogue to Amazon's decision. There's been uh, some reporting over the past couple of days that really this has become if it ever was only about Amazon uh, for the governor, not 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 primarily about the deal itself, but sort of a, almost a proxy fight between the governor and the Democratic left in the state, um, an effort to establish uh, some some distance between the two, an effort by the um, governor to um, try to um, uh, regain some control of the direction of the policy conversation. I mean, that definitely seems to be the case. I, I have no idea if there's any possibility that Amazon would reconsider. It seems unlikely, but it almost seems as it's become a symbolic battle over, uh, you know, the, the left's perceived overreach here and uh, and Cuomo's uh, ability to, to get the deal done. And I think this will be something interesting to even ask Senator Carlucci about, who, again, is from uh, a bit upstate, but but you know, the Senate Democrats have taken Cuomo's ire on this for, as he says, killing the deal. And, uh, and, you know, this is, this is having reverberations well beyond the Amazon deal itself. Um, although people are still continuing to dissect that deal, what went wrong. Mayor de Blasio, I think for the first time recently actually admitted that the city and state didn't necessarily explain things as well as they could have. He had mostly just been pointing the finger at Amazon. Um, but there's definitely a larger conversation, and Cuomo even admitted this, that this is about making sure that the state is still, you know, quote unquote, open for business um, and that there aren't issues around other companies locating or relocating or expanding in New York. And, you know, the Amazon deal is a little bit of a of a unicorn situation, I think. Um, uh, totally a unicorn, yeah. yeah. And I think that's that kind of goes to the symbolism, which is that this argument that um, the fact that Amazon decided to withdraw its proposal amid some opposition to aspects of the deal means that New York is closed for business is a curious argument for the governor and others to make because it can become uh, a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, if the um, if the idea is that the Amazon decision to withdraw is an indication of a poor business environment, then that can then that can stick. Whereas I don't think people generally would look at this deal, which was massive in scope and um, uh, very much um, unique in terms of the land involved, the process, the amount of subsidies, both uh, as of right and um, and granted on a discretionary basis. Um, 
it's something that I think doesn't really apply to the, the most common types of um, uh, economic development programs. So I've been I've been puzzled by that and think it's a little dangerous to use as a cudgel against the left because it can create the impression that, in fact, what happened in the Amazon deal is likely to happen elsewhere when that that's not the case. Right. And I, I think uh, that's that's absolutely correct that uh, this is not something to necessarily be taken as a universal onto onto other onto other issues. I agree. So, well, now that we have completely discussed the uh, political affairs of the day, uh, let's turn our attention to transit, the topic we decided to focus on today, because obviously it is important every day to millions of people who ride the rails and ride the subways and ride the buses, and because congestion pricing is reaching what feels like um, a crux moment. And obviously, this is the second time uh, that we have we have been here. Here. Uh, it was uh, 10 or I guess 11, almost 11 years ago that Mayor Bloomberg pitched his congestion pricing plan before your, before your time, um, right in the middle of mine, sadly. And uh, this year, it looked as if it, and I think it still does have a much greater chance of passage, but it has hit a point where people are starting to ask some, some interesting questions about it. Well, you have uh, a recent proposal put out by the mayor and the governor uh, who have now all of a sudden come together to, to work on this. Uh, As they did on Amazon, yep. Yes, and so that's a fascinating trend we can get into another time. But, um, you know, I think I think that uh, the, the there's questions around whether you're going to get the state Senate fully bought into this, and we'll ask Senator Carlucci about this, but, you know, one of the main objectives that people keep forgetting about congestion pricing is the question of reducing congestion. It's become this conversation now around revenue for the MTA, which is a little bit dangerous because what happens if lots of people decide they're not going to pay the congestion fee and they do jump back into the subway cars and the buses, which is part of the goal? You know, counting on a certain amount of revenue, I think, can be a little bit dangerous. I'm sure maybe they're counting some of that into their modeling. They better be that, you know, a lot that some number of people would get out of their cars. But, you know, we can't forget the congestion piece. And I thought Corey Johnson did a solid job on that in his State of the City, talking about uh, the fact that it's an environmental issue. It's about getting the streets moving and and the buses and getting people moving again in New York. Um, you know, there, there's the other aspect of it is what lawmakers outside of New York City are asking for in terms of, and we'll get to this with Senator Carlucci, of revenue from congestion pricing going not just to the subways and buses, but to the Long Island Railroad and Metro North and some of the other uh, parts of the MTA, how does that work? Exactly. I mean, I think it's interesting you mentioned the question of what is the primary rationale or what are the rationales for congestion pricing? And this is exactly what many people thought killed the Bloomberg proposal was that back then the pitch was we've got to do something about traffic. We've got to do something about air quality. And that was seen as not a winning argument. And that's why I think this time around with the transit crisis so evident on a daily basis to millions of people, the idea that we needed to pay financial 
find a better way to pay for repairs and improvements to the system was powerful. But I think you're right that now the idea that you have to tie it to other goals to make it uh, a, a better sell to a broader population is important, in part because people have looked at the numbers and said, even under the most aggressive estimates, congestion pricing, while important to fixing the financial mix for the transit system, it's not a panacea. It's not going to solve the math. And that's why you saw in the mayor and governor's governor's 10-point proposal last week that they also want to roll in internet sales taxes and the cannabis excise tax, some portion of the revenues from those. Uh, much smaller amounts than congestion pricing will generate, but, um, but adding to this mix, and even then, it's going to take more money. You know, the Andy Byford plan is like 40 to $60 billion. At best, with bonding, you're talking about, you know, $15 billion maybe coming out of congestion pricing, and that's pretty aggressive. Right, that's right. And, and one, of the, one of the keys here is people need to have a realistic discussion about where $40 billion over the next five to 10 years, let's say, is going to come from to totally re-signal many subway lines and do... Uh, the variety of things that are in the fast forward plan. So just to step back for folks who are not familiar with all of this, you have Andy Byford brought in by Governor Cuomo and others at the MTA to run New York City Transit, the subways and the buses. Renowned international expert basically brought in to save the system. He comes up with a long-term plan called Fast Forward that needs somewhere in that neighborhood you mentioned, 30 to 40 to 60 billion dollars over five to 10 years. And it is quickly sort of sidelined in terms of how aggressively folks are going to push it, are going to uh, back it financially. Okay, I'm told we have a surprise caller coming into the line, and that is City Council Speaker Corey Johnson joining us today. Speaker Johnson, are you on the line here on WBAI? Yes, thank you. On. Thank you for listening and for for jumping on here. I uh, I didn't even t- I didn't even tell Jarrett that you were coming on here. It's such a nice <laughs> such a nice surprise. Thank yes, you. Yes, I was listening. I was trying to call in. We were having some technical difficulties, and I'm uh, I listen to you guys every week. I usually not when it's live. Usually on the podcast, and so I'm grateful when I saw that you guys were talking about the just transit issues that are plaguing the city, and I wanted to just call in and and talk about uh, the state of the city address. And and also answer any questions that you guys might have for me on the details of the plan. So I guess give us the uh, elevator pitch for what I, I take to be the kind of headline proposal in your speech, which is city control of the transit system. What's the what's the rationale for that? How would that work? And, and how likely is that to, uh, to actually happen? Well, yesterday I laid out in my speech really the history of the subway system, how it has been the economic engine and lifeblood uh, for the city of New York and getting people around, but also growing our economy and how uh, municipal control is the best option moving forward so that there is singular accountability, not a diffuse board. And I went through the example of you have a 
14 voting members on the MTA board, but you really have 17 members when you include the suburban appointees, but you really have 23 members when you, when you include the non-voting members, and the chairman of the board gets to vote only in the instance of a tie, and how the system is really set up to deflect accountability and then not make it easy for strap hangers and riders to know how to make changes. And so the case I made is a case related to how you could generate the revenue to get it done, what a governance structure should look like, what the benefit would be for the city of New York, and why it is actually achievable and realistic. On the second part of your question, Jarrett, I don't think this is going to happen anytime soon, but I think it's important to think big, to be bold, to come up with plans that may not happen right away, but set the stage and groundwork for the future. Mayor Bloomberg did that when he ran for mayor in 2001 and talking about mayoral control of the school system. People thought it wasn't possible. And I think given the crisis we're seeing in transit right now, it's a conversation worth having backed up with a white paper and a report on how to actually be able to get it done. So the governor was on the radio, as I'm sure you saw, he was on the radio earlier today and he was asked to respond to your proposal. And he basically said, uh, if the city wants it and the city wants to pay for the subways and buses, go for it. Um, and that was sort of the way that he responded to your uh, proposal. So what do you what do you make of that? I mean, is that something you want to sort of call him on and, and take on? You know, I'm going to take the high road because, again, to be able to achieve something like this, you have to be able to work with the state legislature and the governor and a lot of stakeholders. I would say that I put out a serious proposal, a serious plan, with many different options on how to achieve this, whether it's dedicating a portion of the sales tax that we already pay, whether it's looking at the payroll mobility tax or unincorporated business taxes, or creating additional revenue streams, and to do it in a way that wouldn't detrimentally affect the commuter railroads for Metro North and Long Island Railroad. And I I actually want to have a substantive conversation about that with him and with the state legislature and not have it just be dismissed out of hand. The city technically does own the subway stations, but the real question is not about ownership or canceling a lease with one year's notice. It's about control. It's about reform. And it's about, as I said yesterday, and this isn't personal to Governor Cuomo, but any governor of New York State at any point in time is always going to put the interests of the state over the interests of the city because they have to look out for the entire state. But this... But whoever the mayor of the city of New York is has to put the city first. Chicago, Rahm Emanuel has done a good job turning the subway system around Chicago. He has control. Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti got a bond measure passed to fund additional subway stations and have expansion in Los Angeles. We had this pre-1968, and then the state took it over. I think it's a worthy discussion to talk about how it is and not have it be dismissed out of hand. Another element of your proposal was uh, a requirement or a, a practice of the city doing a master plan for its streets every five years. And I, I wonder, there's a lot to pick apart or talk about with that proposal, but you know, there have been folks who've called for a while for the city to do a master plan 
full stop for the city, a comprehensive plan, something the city has not done that would tie together transit, land use, uh, other government investments. Uh, do you see this plan as being a, a totally distinct uh, a thing focusing only on transit? Would it make sense to be part of a, a bigger, more comprehensive vision for the city's future? Well, one of the things that you guys have really focused on, uh, both city limits and which I'm really grateful for, is you focused on the Charter Revision Commission process, both the Mayor's Charter Revision Commission and the one that was passed by local law by the City Council, which is made up from a variety of appointments from elected officials. And the Council just put a report out a couple of weeks ago uh, which uh, Gotham Gazette wrote about, and one of the recommendations we made was to look at the land use process. We didn't call for drastic reforms in ULERP, but we talked about comprehensive planning being part of that. And I think what I called on yesterday as it relates to uh, the uh, transportation planning and transit planning and street planning and a bicycle network and all of these things really goes hand in hand with that. Right now, our planning is done both at a transportation level and at a land use level generally in a piecemeal way where neighborhoods feel like that they're being asked to do something that other neighborhoods aren't being asked to do. And it creates a level of nimbyism and resentment that you could potentially uh, lessen if people felt like everyone was going to have to do their part. And I'm not sure... We have a cohesive, cogent argument that we make from a citywide perspective right now. So I think that's a good reason to do it. And also, this would save lives. I've worked with Families for Safe Streets. They're an amazing group of parents and brothers and sisters and friends who have lost loved ones to traffic violence. And I've been inspired by them. And anything we can do to continue to save lives, we need to be proactive and not reactive in doing that. So you connected some of what you just said to this notion of breaking the car culture in New York City. Um, The policy and the politics of this, you know, whether it's state approval or the conversations with the governor or getting Mayor de Blasio on board or not, or it factoring into another race, you know, they're they're sort of inextricable that the the policies that you're talking about and the the politics of it are are right there with each other. When you talk about breaking the car culture in New York, are are you worried to any extent? about all the car owners out there and and how they might feel to hear you, you know, sort of talk in in that way? Oh, I I don't think that this is uh, probably the most politically popular thing to say, especially to people who own vehicles. And we're we're not saying that there shouldn't be any cars in New York City. What we're saying is that cars should no longer uh, kind of rule the road and be king and be the paramount thing that we look at. And our policies, as I stated yesterday, dating back to Robert Moses, have put vehicles and uh, private automobiles above good comprehensive mass transit planning and environmentally good planning for bikes and and other uh, things like for pedestrians. And so... Uh, There are going to be people that don't like this, but it's really about when you have 6 million people who take the subways and buses every day, when you have every New Yorker has to walk uh, on our streets and on our sidewalks, when you have cyclists who have to pedal on unsafe streets, it's really about priorities. And I think that you can elevate these issues, keep people safe, make mass transit and environmentally sustainable transit a greater priority than you do cars while still not saying that cars are going to be eliminated, just making sure that they're not 
the paramount concern when we're making public policy. All right. Well, there's a lot more we want to ask you about, um, but we're I'm gonna, happy to come back anytime. We're, well, we're I'm I'm in regular contact with your office trying to find a time for us to have a good long sit down for this show and the podcast. Great. So we will we will find that time. We appreciate the call in and and uh, and your listening, and we'll definitely be following up with more more questions about your plans uh, in the near future. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Thank Jarrett. You. All Thank right. you, Speaker. Bye-bye. And we're back on Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM, listener-sponsored non-commercial radio coming to you from Brooklyn. Jarrett Murphy here with Ben Max. We just heard uh, out of the blue from Council Speaker uh, Corey Johnson talking about his state of the city yesterday, his proposal for a uh, several different ideas regarding the city's transit system, perhaps the most interesting one or the, the biggest lift, uh, giving the city uh, control over the, the buses and subways in town. 